This is the Horse Radio Network. This is episode 8 of Equestrian Legends. Hello, I'm Chris Stafford, and my guest this week is eventer and show jumper Annalie Drummond Hay. Annalie Drummond Hay was born on August 4, 1937, in Dorset, England. One of seven children, her family was of Scottish aristocracy. Her great grandfather and Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, were siblings. After World War II, the family moved to the Drummond Hay family seat in Perthshire, Scotland. Against this background, Annalie devoted her young life to her ponies, which established the foundation for her to become a great horsewoman. Her legendary partnership with Melia Monarch engraved her place in the annals of eventing and show-jumping history. The first winner of the Burley Horse Trials, they went on to win Badminton Horse Trials and a European Silver Medal in 1976 before turning to show-jumping. Their impact in the sport of eventing, alongside Sheila Wilcox, turned the tide for women to be included in the Olympic Games. Annalie and Monarch then changed course and embarked on a long partnership representing Great Britain in show jumping, for which she also rode Xanthos to numerous successes around the world. Monarch then proved his all-round talent by becoming a successful dressage horse. Annalie represented Great Britain on Nations Cup teams for 14 years, and her victories included many prestigious Grand Prix and Derby titles before changing nationalities to represent South Africa at the 1994 World Equestrian Games. She has been honoured with multiple awards, including the International Equestrian Federation's Badge of Honour, South African Sportswoman of the Year eight times, and Britain Sportswoman of the Year three times. In 2010, she was inducted into the British Equestrian Federation's Hall of Fame for outstanding achievements in equestrian sport. The Italian Equestrian Federation bestowed upon her the Premio Caprilli for outstanding achievements, while the French Federation and Caronois awarded her the Gold Spurs for contribution to show jumping. Milia Monarch was inducted into the British Hall of Fame in 2005 as one of the top five sport horses ever seen at the turn of the century. Annalie is the only rider to be shortlisted to represent her country in all three Olympic disciplines for the same Olympic Games. During her marriage to Errol Wookerfenig, Annalie made South Africa her home, after which she returned to Europe for 13 years while competing for her adopted country. She has lived in South Africa since 2006, and is married to equestrian judge Trevor Byrne. Well, Annalie, thank you so much for joining me. It is obviously a delight to have you on the show because your name resonates with so many people around the horse world. Really, life hasn't slowed down. You're as busy as ever. <laughs> it wasn't planned, <laughs> but somehow it, it happened. I'm very lucky. I'm so fit and able to ride and... Maybe not ride at the same level as I used to, but I'm, I'm still riding at a reasonable level. And I've got some nice horses to ride, and I competed yesterday, and yeah, it's okay. Keeps me in touch. 
Well, certainly does. And I think you've got quite a few horses in your barn and you're teaching a, a lot. What is a typical day in the life of Annalie Drummond Hay these days then? It's actually um, not that exciting. I mean, I ride five or six horses in the morning and then I teach people, mostly kids, in the afternoon until I'm sort of exhausted. <laughs> and then I, then I go home. But, um, yeah, look, it, it's, it's interesting. I've never had to teach kids before. And I think that teaching kids actually is more of a psychological endeavor, more than, more than actually teaching them to ride. And, because, you know, the kids are a bit different. But anyway, it, it's, it's been interesting. These, of course, are children that may, would not have remembered you in that, at the pinnacle of your career. And so I, I, you know, I, I have, I'm sure they have a different appreciation of you and what you offer them as young people coming in the sport. And it is mainly you're focusing on on show jumping these days, is it? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, obviously they have a, they haven't a clue. They have to do anything. And well, maybe they have a little clue, but they don't really. It's not that's not important. That's not what I'm trading on. I'm trading on trying to get them from being whatever they are to being better riders. And um, it's, an, it's an interesting, um, what can I say, uh, um, experience, for nothing else. Well, I want to reflect on your career, Annalie, because it really is an outstanding career, as I said in my introduction. And, and if I may take you back to the very early days, as I said, you were born into a large family, the third of seven children, born in England, but actually Scottish. What do you most fondly remember of your childhood? <laughs> I didn't. I wasn't very fond of it, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> you had your poems. Yeah, I was always trying to escape. I, but I suppose, in retrospect, my, the, the, the plus factor was that there were always ponies and horses there. So I used to escape into them. And um, all my problems, I, I, I gave it to the horses and ponies. I, I didn't have a very happy childhood. Of course, it was uh, wartime, and you spent some of that time evacuated to England, didn't you? Tell us about that, because I, I believe you, you were able to indulge in your ponies a great deal then. Uh, well, well, we left, um, family left England in, at the end of the war, and um, my mother was supportive in her own way, but she actually didn't really sort of look after what her children were doing, and... Um, but you always had ponies there, and I just somehow or other loved the ponies and horses. That we she had polo ponies and that sort of thing, and I just put all my sort of um, what can I say my my adoration into the horses, and uh, somehow or other it grew. And I, I wasn't wild about people. <laughs> <The horses. laughs> Horses, 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 and and but but I believe you were quite fond of your grandmother, and and she provided a, a refuge for horses as in need as well, didn't she? Oh, she did, but I didn't actually know her. She she was a bit sort of um, um, uh, what can I think of it? A little bit overboard. I mean, for instance, there were about thirty horses came over to do a backing bronco thing um, in England. Um, from 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 the, from the state, and she took pity on these horses, 
And uh, because you didn't like the way they were being treated, because they, they were obviously made to back because they had backing straps on them. So she bought the whole lot. She had obviously quite a lot of money in those days. <laughs> and then the war broke out. So there were 30 odd horses left grazing in a paddock that were unrightable because all they could do was buck. <laughs> but um, and I didn't really know my grandmother that well, but um, she obviously was very sort of pro anti cruel sports and, you know, she, she loved animals. And something of a pioneer herself, I think, the co-founder of the Anti-Vivisection Society. So, yes, she was. Yeah. Yes, so she was. quite, uh, quite obviously an established, uh, as you said, an animal lover, a pioneer. And did, do you know where you got your, your pony-loving, animal-loving, uh, your devotion to in those early days? Do you know where, where it came from? Well, it's an interesting question. To be honest, I'm not really sure, but I, I, I didn't have a very happy childhood. I, you know that my, family, my mother and father went sort of very well suited, and somehow or other I, I, I was a bit sort of, I just disappeared my energy into the horses. And there were always sainty ponies and horses there, so I've got to thank my mother for that. Yes, always um, plenty of ponies and, and dogs too. Did, uh, how did you get Yeah, I didn't, I didn't, yeah, I didn't love dogs so much. But I, the horses I, I loved, and um, then somehow or other, I, I just need to get myself out of the family situation, and I thought the horses were that my, were my refuge. You see, when I was 16, 17, I was brought up sort of as a blue-blooded, um, what can I say, um, high-society, sparring debutante. I actually didn't want to be it because I actually hated it. And um, so when I was thrown into the debutante scene, I, I did a couple of debutante dances and that was it. I, I said, no, I had it. So I, I ran back to my horses and um, that was how it all started, really. I wasn't I wasn't bred to be a rider. I was bred to be a debutante and marry the right, right man or whatever. <laughs> it didn't happen. And as you said, being of an aristocratic family in Scotland at that time, you also had a role as lady-in-waiting whenever the Queen was visiting Scotland. I was too. for a bit. I was for a bit. I hated it. I mean, I didn't hate it, but I mean, I just felt inappropriate. Because you had to put the right clothes and say the right thing and who you were talking to. and It, was, it, was, it wasn't really my scene. But of course, at that stage, I wasn't there to question it because I was thrown into it. But uh, on retrospect, I must have been very gauche and hopeless. I really didn't know who I was talking to and who, you know, and I, I wasn't a good lady in waiting at all. It must have been a desperately difficult time then for a shy girl who just wanted to be with her horses. Mm. Absolutely, that's exactly it. I mean, didn't ask questions. I was reasonably good at riding and um, I sort of managed to be successful whereas I wasn't successful in society. But one of the things I understand you did enjoy too, as well as your horses, which we'll talk lots more about in a moment, but you also enjoyed music. You played the piano. I did. It was a bit of a refuge too. Um, I, I, mean, I suppose I was reasonably good. I must have been pretty good because I, I, I went through a few sort of piano you know, things. 
But um, my mother pushed me into being a top. I mean, I was put into the. They had an Edinburgh festival thing, and I had to play there. And I suddenly got angry and said, "No, I'm not going to do this anymore. I don't. I don't enjoy it because I mean, pushed into it. I knew I wasn't top top class. I was okay, but I wasn't top top. And so that's it. I, I don't think I'd be able to play a piano today if I had to. But horses clearly were where you were destined to focus your life, your entire life, clearly. And it soon became apparent that the pony club was an easy transition for you. And as you said, you had plenty of ponies and you you really enjoyed immediate success, didn't you, with the uh, pony club and European championships? I, the pony club was, was actually too easy for me. I mean, without being, I don't mean to be sort of um, arrogant about it, but it was too easy. But I did to win the final championship, whatever, whatever it's called. But um, sure, it was a stepping stone. But um, my my um, my goal in life was to be able to follow Pat Smythe. And Pat Smythe had been our how can I say she was she was she lived with us during the war and had graduated from riding polo ponies that my mother had to being a top international show jumper. And this is what I always aspired to wanting to be like. Something or other, I just thought that that, that was what I wanted to, wanted, wanted to do. So she was your inspiration and, and your mentor? Absolutely. Which... She was my inspiration. She was a good friend. Um, and um, she was a bit older than me, but um, she, she was my inspiration. Well, she certainly provided you with the inspiration because you're the only rider, I believe, to have competed at the highest level in eventing, dressage and chojimik, all three Olympic disciplines annually. But in those early days, you actually made your way into eventing as the first step. Was it because of the horses you got? I know you got a chance ride on your cousin, Major Drummond Morris, Anglo-Arab Mare Freya for the Windsor European Championships. Was it because those horses were available for you to go eventing that you took that route first? Yes, I think you're probably right. I think that I got a chance ride to ride a fair. At, I mean, can you believe it? The first competition ever was the European Championship. We didn't have to, to qualify in those days. So I just entered. And then I didn't read the small print. I was two years too young to ride. But anyway, I didn't tell anybody. I actually didn't even know until after I'd finished. And then afterwards, everybody said, oh, they knew I was too young, but nobody said anything. But that actually set the ball rolling, and I thought, no, this is what I want to do. And um, I got, well, I don't know, 10, 15 horses after that, that I decided there had to be um, event horses. And they were all cheaper horses, but I decided they had to do what I wanted them to do and do eventing. And you could with horses that didn't have a very special jump. You made them obedient and you made them do what you wanted to do. And I managed to sort of cope with getting them up to badminton level. Um, and I did that for about, oh, I didn't know, it was just think, about five, six, seven years. And then I got this wonderful horse, Melia Monarch, which Obviously, I bought originally for eventing, but he was just superb. But I trained him in the same way, and he won at Burley, the first three-day event, and then he won at Badminton, 
his first he was only six then or six or seven. And but then I realised he was actually far too good to go over anything because he could have hurt himself and he, he was such a special horse. So that's when I switched to show jumping after having won Babington. Um then I decided to really try and get it right at show jumping. Well, as you said, Melia Monarch was one of those horses in a lifetime, and I want to spend more time on him in just a minute, uh, Annalie. But if I can just take you back, as you mentioned, you did buy, as was once said about you, you bought unlikely horses and took them to the top. And one of those examples I'd love to hear your version of was when you bought a little horse called Perhaps for the grand sum of £20 from a horse and hound advertisement. Yes, you're right. It was actually £15. Oh, was it (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I hadn't, you know, unfortunately my 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 upbringing deprived me of any money. My my mother had a bit of money when she, she was young, but somehow or other she didn't realise that her children needed money. But anyway, so somehow or other I managed to get £15 together and there was an advert in this horse and and somehow or other I, I was attracted to it and it was a three-year-old. And I phoned them up and they said, no, you can just in time because you're about to send him to the slaughter. Um, so I said, we'll put him on the train from, I think he was in Cornwall or some, right at the bottom of England, and then send him up to the train and to Perth. And this dreadful skeletal grey thing arrived, looking like nothing on earth. I mean, he was really hideous. And that's how he got his name, perhaps. And anyway, he, he I think he, he always sort of was thankful to me because I virtually saved his life. So I trained him for three or maybe four years, I think it was three years, up to badminton standard. Just remember in those days, you didn't have to qualify, you just trained and entered. And I took him to badminton, and um, I think he was he was runner-up that year, and it was the Olympic year. So all the Olympic top guns were out. And um, I think there was... First, second, and no, the first and third and fourth were all the Australians who actually went on to win the gold medal. But I was, man- I think, I managed to be second. And um, but of course, in those days, women were not allowed to ride in a three-day event in the Olympics because it was deemed to be too dangerous for the for the first day. So we were expected to give our superstar horses to a man so that they could represent our country and um, of course I, I wasn't very keen about that and I um, actually sold perhaps he went to the Swiss Olympic team. You and Sheila Wilcox of course were pioneers in turning the tide for women to be, participate in the Olympic Games. They were allowed in show jumping of course but not inventing. No they weren't. No they weren't allowed in show jumping. Pat Smart changed in show jumping. Pat Smyth was the first pioneer in 56. 56, yes. Yeah. Yes. And then, yeah. And then they changed it in 64 for women. For women. And, and it is said that if you, even if Monarch had not switched to show jumping in 64, he would probably have made those Olympic Games. In, in oh, in for sure. Yes. He was the top horse at that stage. For well, sure. He he was a top horse in so many ways, and I, I do remember him, of course, when you were with Peter Robeson, based there in in, in the mid sixties, with him and with Xanthos. Mm. And I always remember he was a great character, wasn't he? Mm. Ironically, mm. terribly naughty. Yes. 
Very stupid. But you know, you loved him for it. He bucked me off once and that's how it is. Just full of himself. Well, let's uh, let's tell his story, Annalie. Where did you actually find him, and how did you come about buying him? It was completely. It was destiny, actually. Um, I advertised an horse and hound that I wanted a three to four year old for a venting, a possible venting, you know. Mm-hmm. And I had a multitude of answers, and one of them was for a two year old, which I really didn't. I didn't want two year olds. They're very boring at that age. But um, they sent a photograph, and I, I sort of put it aside. But anyway, six months later, I still hadn't found a horse, and I was just sifting through this pile of not possible horses. And the two-year-old was now becoming nearly three. And I looked at the photo again, and I thought, gosh, this horse has got something special. So I phoned the lady up who was selling him, and she said, no, she still had him. And she lived very close to Harwood, where the three-year event was taking place in the following week. So I arranged to meet her when I went up for the... I was riding some horse at the Harwood three-year event. And I took one look at him in the paddock, and I just said that something special. And uh, that's it. It was too expensive. I didn't have the money to buy him, but a friend offered me the money. We cost me 300 pounds. <laughs> I managed to pay more for every year. You've grown and, some of your own proud. You got a lot of replies. I think you've got about 70 replies to that. Uh, uh, oh, I must have. In, in I must have. Yeah. And so then you took him home, but didn't he turn you over on a, on a, a jumping a one-foot pole, which, which, which wasn't a very auspicious start to your partnership, was it? Oh, yes. No, 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 he was just terribly naughty. They said he'd broken him in, but he hadn't. He'd learned to have to buck people off. So um, it was much worse. But anyway, we got through that problem. And then I, um, somebody, a friend of mine near, near Perth, where I was living in Scotland, had a, a loose school. It was quite new in those days with some jumps on it. And one of the jumps was a pole with a little ditch underneath. And he was putting him around this... Um, sort of a circular arena with this three-year-old horse that I just acquired. And the horse sort of looked at the ditch and had a heart attack. So he got behind him with a stick and the horse put his feet in the ditch and then tried to jump the pole, which of course was fixed. It was only about six inches above the ground, but probably two feet below the ground if he put his feet in the ditch. And caught the pole above his knees and turned to somersaults. So I thought that was the end of my new horse. Anyway, he survived. You survived, and as you said, yeah. three, three years later, you arrive at, at Burley Horse Trials to be the first winner in 1961 of Burley Horse Trials when he was just six years old. He was in, I didn't actually intend riding him. I entered him, <laughs> but I was intended to ride another horse, which I had a bit of a fallout with the owners. And, um, I didn't like the way the horse was feeling to me. He didn't feel like he was ready. And so I took my sort of fairly unprepared six-year-old, but a little bit sort of in my heart and my mouth, because he was, I knew he was special. And anyway, he managed to jump across the country. He was the only horse to go clear, actually. What did you recognize in him, Annalie, in those very early days? Because he had the most incredible career with you. But what did you spot in him when you said he was different? He had 
mainly a look of eagles. When you saw him, he had something special about him. And look of eagles is the best way I can describe it. But he had the movement, he floated, um, his jump was extra. And everybody who saw him, right at the beginning of his career, especially, they said, oh my God, I've got to have that horse. Where's he come from? And so I had offers for him left, back and center from dress horse, eventing, and then obviously show jumping. And of course, those offers just kept increasing, didn't they, in, in, mm. in value every year? Mm, it was terrible because I, I, you know, I adored him. We'd had a lot of trauma together, but I adored him and we'd sort of come through it. And I mean, I went to, I won Babington in whenever it was, April or May. Then I just entered him for the Royal International, which was two months later. No, no qualifications needed in those days. I just entered him, I put him in the top classes. And I, I was, okay, I was a guide, but I was clueless about show jumping. And I went down distances, dropping strides, and very exuberant. I didn't drop strides in the combination, but I dropped strides, for instance, if it was a high stride, I'd go down in four. And it was quite big. We were jumping sort of like 150. And, um, you know, this horse did, did it. And so all the top show jumpers said, my God, what's this horse? And, um, you know, he, and he won. And he won a big class, the Imperial Cup at the Royal International. And I was second in the Queen's Cup. And I can't remember. I think I was second in the John Player, what it was. But, I mean, you know, the horse was just amazing how he put up with what I was doing, but we were both in tune in a way. You went on to win Badminton by the largest margin in history. I think you won the Armada Dish for completing Badminton five times. Um, but we should mention that you'd already been to Badminton before you rode him there. You rode Trident there and when you were six. That was your first Badminton, wasn't it? Oh yes, I rode many horses. I, rode, I mean, I, I actually was second about three or four times with other horses. I read a revolting horse, well, I shouldn't say revolting, but he wasn't very nice in retrospect, called Pluto. He was second also. But, I mean, and then I had a lot of experience with riding eventing. And I'd ridden very much lesser horses, and somehow managed to do reasonably well. But as you said, he was extraordinary. He could turn his hand to anything, and I believe. Yeah. I believe, yeah. I, was it the National Hunt trainer, Fort Walwyn, once offered to train him for a year free of charge because he thought he'd make us a steeplechaser? <laughs> yes, you're right, you're right. I, I, in his final gallop before Badminton, I asked the sort of neighbour, which was Fort Walwyn, um, if I could come and give him a final pipe opener before Badminton. And he said, yes, I could do it, but I couldn't ride it myself because the rules were that any professional jockeys or whatever it was could ride the horse on the gallop. So I said, well, it doesn't really matter. He's just got to blow out his wind tube. So um, I think it's a little bit of a a joke to me. They said, well, we're going to let him gallop up with a horse called Flame Gun, who was top two-mile chaser of his day. So I said, well, it's fine, you know. So off they went with a sun jockey on, on um, Monarch's back. And they came up the gallop, stride for stride, and then the last sort of whatever half mile or whatever, they let them stretch out. <laughs> Monarch left this superstar two mile chaser standing, 
They just left him. So everybody tells him, oh God, what's this horse? You can't go on doing what you're doing with him. He's part of good. Well, he had um, the perfect name, didn't he, merely a monarch. But for those who remember him, and of course he was the most striking colour too, very dark bay, very, very handsome yeah. horse, wasn't he? Yes, he was, yeah. Um, but he yeah. did have fell pony in him, didn't he? Well, he was his grandmother. I think his yes. grandmother's great-grandmother was a fell pony. Yeah. He, was a, he was a complete freak. I've actually got a picture of his mother, who was only 15 one, and they never managed to really ride her, but she was impossible. Because um, she, whatever, I don't know, she, she looked, didn't look that special, but um, she obviously, her character came through to me in a in the right way. And how big did he stand? He was actually 17 hands. Yeah, he was quite big. Um, yeah, he was big enough. Yeah. I, I read somewhere that you did have a bit of a training issue with him, and you sought the help of your good friend Nelson Pessoa. Neko actually helped you to, to get him to accelerate off the leg. Yeah, it was a bit more complicated than that. Um, Nelson was amazing. I went to, I, I, after I had my sort of bad time with Manny and Mark when he started he put in the odd stop, um, when I was put onto the British Olympic team, and then he started having an odd stop, never eliminated, but just an odd stop, which wasn't good enough for an Olympic um, contender. I sort of really, it was a very difficult time for me, and I was invited to go to America to do the the, the winter circuit in um, Madison Square Garden in Washington, mm-hmm. you know, all that sort of thing. And um, the first show I came to, I rode him, in every event, because he was the only horse I had. And um, I think the second event was the uh, Puissance, which I'd never done before, and nor would he. And we ended up winning it, jumping seven foot two. Um, but, you know, because my horse could do anything, he would do speed classes or whatever. I, I was ignorant, I didn't really know. I just, I knew it was really big. And then we went on to New York, and um, I entered him for the pre-sales again, obviously, because he'd done, he won the last one. And when we'd done the first four fences and then go down the centre for the big wall, which was only at five foot six at that stage, Monarch said, that's it, I'm not going near a big wall again. And I was absolutely devastated because I, this wonderful horse of mine, I completely wrecked him by jumping seven foot two the week before. And he must have got such a fright that he never wanted to see a wall again. And Nelson Patel was there, and I was sort of in tears, saying, my God, what do I do? And Nelson was amazing. He said, you know, I did exactly the same thing with Granger. I jumped him in a puissance, too many. And he said, that's it, I'm never doing that again for you. And he said, don't ever ride him in a puissance again, obviously. And he said, but in future, when you ride him into a big wall, turn short so he thinks it's a speed loss. And that's what I did. Whenever there was a big wall, I pretended I was a speed loss. And then he didn't think of it as a weasel. Well, your partnership with him really is, is one, as I said, of legends. But it, it, is, it is interesting to note how um, Dorian Williams it was back in in the early 60s, I believe, he, he said that you were not just a natural horsewoman, but you're brilliant as a result of dedicated application. And 
you know all the great theories, but trust your own. And I think that is exactly what took you on this journey, and especially the successes you had with Monarch, which were numerous, as I said in my introduction, in, on the Grand Prix circuit, Nations Cups, and so on. And then came along came a young pretender called Xanthos, as you call Tiger, I believe, who who, <laughs> who tried to dethrone Monarch, didn't he? Tell us about this other great horse in your career. No, no, no. He never, never tried to dethrone Monarch. He was a freak. He was a pony. <laughs> <laughs> he was barely fifteen once. He was a he was he was a lunatic, and a friend of mine told me to buy him um, because she said she'd seen him in pony club things with a child, but he was too hot for her and too difficult, but she thought he was fantastic. And um, I went along and looked at him, and I thought he was absolutely idiotic because he's far too small for me. He was really just a pony. But somehow or other, I believed in her advice, and I bought him with a huge sum of £800. And I got him home, and I thought, now you're going to do what I tell you, and um, maybe you can make something out of you. Well, the more I told him that, the worse he got. And he got furious, and he used to bite my feet, and when I was on him, of course, and dug a hole from the ground, and he was he had, he had was a very red chestnut. And he had this huge temper. And I was exasperated. And so finally, I put the girl who was working for me on him, and I said, just ride him around the course that I had at home, which she did, because she didn't really know what she was doing. Horse was amazing. So I thought, well, that's it. Either I lose all the money I've invested in this horse, or I ride in the same way. So that I decided to ride in the same way, and so that's how I rode him forever and ever. And um, I mean, he won me four derbies. He won me the Hicksy Derby and the um, oh, the Rome Derby twice, and I think, and he won me the French Derby. But I just let him. I had to let him do what he wanted. And then he was amazing. But he wasn't he wasn't a threat to, to Melia Monarch. Melia Monarch was, was an orthodox horse. Xanthos was totally unorthodox. And you had to shut your eyes and go along with him. But he had a huge heart and um he just he defied everything because the terrible technique, he hung his knees, but he didn't want to touch. And he was as brave as a lamb. And he was a good experience for me. I learned how to ride. Well, you certainly got uh, very successful with your partnership with him, as you said, so many Grand Prix and and on the Nations Cup team and, of course, the Derbys, as you as you mentioned. And I read somewhere, curiously, uh, that you you once you had Canadian oats for Monarch, Scots oats for Tiger, and then English oats for everybody else. Was that really the case? No, I don't think so. I think that's to heart some hierarchy in the stable there, Annalie. No, no, I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't think that's quite true. No, they, they all had good treatment. But I, I must admit, I'd like to get into the character of each horse and to understand how their mind works. And, you know, providing they want to try for me, I'll do everything for them. And, um, you know, I, th- I think it's... Probably Xanthos taught me how to not be dominating, providing he was he was on my side. Well, you had of course, so many horses through your hands. I think it was Colonel Sir Mike Ansell that once said 
that he thought, Emily is a great horseman, I believe he said, and the number of horses she has made is quite remarkable. And some of those, of course, as you mentioned, perhaps Celeste, Emily's Tango, Guinea Pig, Skyrocket, Frenchman, Roman Candle, Big George, Canal, uh, Fenella Friar, we had mentioned earlier, Scepter, and of course, uh, Xanthos or Tiger, as you call him, and, and, and Monarch. Uh, of, of all of those wonderful achievements that you've had with these horses over the years, Annalie, when you reflect back on them, what stands out most of you, in your mind of those partnerships and the, the successes you achieved? Well, I'm not very good at looking back at my own success. I always think the future is more important than the past. Um, I realized that Nearly Bonnet was very special. Um, he had to be. He cost me a lot of money. <laughs> um, and the other was just, they had to be reasonably good because it was my survival. I didn't, I didn't have money to, to fall back on. And so that every horse I had had to, to be reasonably okay. And I think that when I look back on it, I think that the youngsters of today are very much blessed with better horse flesh. Although nearly a monarch was probably the best ever, but I do think there's a huge supply now of superior horses to what we had to put up with in those days. But I'm glad that I... You know, you've got to make do with what you've got and get the best out of them. That was my philosophy. It was once said of you that you had great pluck, very real courage, both mentally and physically, and possessed great strengths physically and morally. What do you perceive to be your weaknesses and strengths? And was there anything that ever intimidated you when you were competing in that period, uh, which was obviously more challenging for women in the early days? Having to make a speech after you'd won. Oh. <laughs> that really finished me. <laughs> you never stepped up to the limelight willingly, did you? No, no. It was it was a little bit of a fight for myself to prove that I could do something, but it was quite private. I didn't really want to go in front of the lights and everything else that it involved. And, um, yeah... I probably wouldn't have been a very good superstar today, but um, I suppose you learn. Was there any particular moment or horse or event in your career that you would now consider to be a turning point in your career, Annalie? Um, well, there was, there was a few turning points. Obviously, Nearly a Monarch was a turning point because he enabled me to, to get into the top league of show jumping, which I'd always wanted to do, but I never had a horse good enough. So that I'd, I'd spent nine or ten years eventing on lesser horses. Um, and then Mary Monarch came along and he enabled me to do the thing that I really wanted to do. And then I suppose another turning point was Xanthos because he was so unorthodox. Either he was junk or I learned to ride him. So I learned to ride him and luckily, you know, he won me actually probably more in a way than Mary Monarch did. And then, um, I suppose after that, I had turning point because I started riding more blood. And they, um, I started to ride a little bit diff different system because they needed a bit more sort of engine put into them, perhaps, than the thoroughbred type horse. I don't know. I mean, what, what, I'm learning all the time. And luckily, I'm still, I've got two very nice 
warmed out horses, which were bred in Belgium, and I'm still competing. And um, yeah, they 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 love me, and I love them, and they, you know, we have a little sort of talk around the course and relationships going on, which is all a bit idiotic and childish, but I enjoy it. Takes you back to your childhood, I'm sure, and your your Absolutely. Your, your relationship with your ponies. It's yeah. It's 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 actually. I, I think the relationship you have with your horse and it's so important. I mean, they know your little bit of idiosyncrasies, and you know, I talk to them when I get the stable. I talk to them when I whatever I'm doing. You know, I t- I pick them off if I don't like what they're doing, but I love them when I when when I do like what they're doing. It's a bit and it becomes a bit personal, you know. Yeah, very much so, and and we should mention. Your career and your life really has actually travelled from one continent to another. Having been brought up in in England and Scotland, you then um, eventually you went to South Africa, were married for the first time, and then went back to Europe, didn't you, to the, to uh, to be based there for a number of years, and and also compete in the 1994 World Equestrian Games, as I mentioned earlier, and then now you're back in South Africa. So there's obviously a, a deep rooted uh, draw to South Africa and, and your life there? Yeah, um, it, was, it was a difficult decision, but I decided that Europe's a bit cruel. And um, I decided that, you know, I didn't want to be competing at a top level anymore. And there were a lot of people in South Africa that probably could benefit from my guidance, perhaps. And um, I prefer the sun. And it, it just sort of happened somehow or other. I think if you're at a top level, you must be in Europe or the States. But, you know, obviously I'm winding down a little bit now, although I'm still competing. But um, to, I don't know. I just it somehow or other happened. And I'm glad it, I came back, actually. Ellie, do you have a, a life motto that, that you would offer young people coming up in the sport? something that's uh, inspired you or someone? Difficult question, but I think probably uh, my main motto would be hang in when things are going badly. Anybody can hang in when it's going well, but just when it's going badly, just grit your teeth and come through it. Everyone's got bad times, you know. You've You've got to get through it. And, and how do you view the sport now? I know you're still participating yourself as a competitor in South Africa, but when you look at the world stage and how the sport has evolved, particularly of show jumping, how do you regard it generally today? I think it's all become much more refined and much, generally speaking, much better riders because they know their basics. Um, luckily, I was able to have reasonably good basics because of my eventing background. But nowadays, I see the show jumpers have got far better basics than they used to have. And, um, yeah, I, th- I think that the standard probably is overall higher, although I do think that the top riders of yesteryear were top riders even if they were competing today. Because there's a little bit of extra something or other that makes you into a top rider. I think there's, 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 there's no more room for cowboys so much nowadays. Whereas there was in my heyday. And qualifications were not as strict in your day. Oh, well, there weren't any. <laughs> you just entered. <laughs> <laughs> you just did it. 
We were blind to the problems. <laughs> <laughs> well, finally, Annalie, at the, at the end of the day now, when you close your door and, uh, and pour a glass of something and sit back, I, and you, as you said, you're not one to reflect much, but what actually means the most to you now in your career and how would you like to be considered as a horsewoman? Well, that's a very difficult question. I didn't really think about that. Um, I, I, I just, I, I think probably getting as old as I am, um, I probably got a bit more respect from people, generally speaking, which is nice because if you say something, they perhaps listen to what you're saying. Um, but I don't think of myself as being sort of um, people remembering as whatever. I think it's, uh, you just have to do what you do with honesty and genuine persistence and hopefully you can bring a few through to reach, reach the level that I would like them to reach. Wonderful. Well, Emily, thank you so much for being my guest. It's been an absolute pleasure having you. Okay. Well, thank you. Please join me again next time when we celebrate the life of another equestrian legend. Until then, thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.